From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'd like to welcome you back to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dennis Kim. Last week was the 27th annual LAC-USC Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery Conference, and I wanted to give a big shout out to the course directors, Drs. Anaba, Dimitriadis, Lam, and Matsushima for an absolutely fantastic program and the first in-person conference that I've attended since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was really great to catch up with friends and colleagues from across the country. Personally, I was really excited at the opportunity to participate in the pro-con debate, which is always a highlight of the meeting, with the one and only Dr. Matt Martin, in which I argued against the routine use of pre-hospital pelvic binders in patients with suspected hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures. It was a lively and fun discussion, but more on that in the next episode of Rounds, which will launch next week. Absent from the meeting were two well-known surgeons who often participate in the pro-con debate, Drs. Ali Salim from the Brigham and Dr. Carlos Brown at Dell Medical School University, University of Texas at Austin. A few weeks back, I had the opportunity to catch up with Dr. Brown, and so I thought that it would be an opportune time to release the conversation that I had with Carlos today. But before we jump in, I do want to give a huge shout out to a couple of folks, including Jimmy, one of our surgical techs here at Harbor UCLA, as well as Dr. John Shepard. Thank you both so much for your kind reviews of the show on the Apple Podcast app. Your support of the show really helps with both our exposure as well as visibility. And if you too are a fan of Rounds, enjoy our content, and or believe that it's contributing in some small way to your education and professional development, remember that you too can support the show. Simply go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcasts, give us a five-star rating, and post a kind comment. Every episode, we'll be sure to give shout-outs to recognize you and your comments on the show. And now, without further ado, Dr. Carlos Villar-Brown. I'd like to welcome you back to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dennis Kim. I'm very excited for our guest professor today. Joining us on Rounds is Dr. Carlos Villar-Brown. Dr. Brown is a professor of surgery and perioperative care, the chief of acute care surgery, and the general surgery residency program director at Dell Medical School, University of Texas at Austin. Originally from Austin, Carlos completed medical school at the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, followed by his residency in general surgery at the Naval Medical Center, San Diego, California. Following this, he completed a trauma and surgical critical care fellowship at LAC-USC, where he started his early career as an assistant professor of surgery at Keck School of Medicine, LAC-USC, as well as the director of the Naval Trauma Training Center. Eventually, he returned to Austin, where he took on the roles of program director for the general surgery residency and trauma medical director at the Del Seton Medical Center at the University of Texas. Carlos is the recipient of numerous teaching and research awards, as well as military awards and service medals for meritorious service. Further, he's mentored an innumerable number of medical students, 
residents and fellows over the years. Naturally, he's a member and holds leadership positions on numerous surgical and educational societies, including the American Board of Surgery and the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. This wasn't enough. Dr. Brown has authored over 200 peer-reviewed publications, 20 book chapters, and he's the co-editor for two recently published textbooks, Surgical Critical Care Therapy, a Clinically Oriented Practical Approach, and Emergency General Surgery, a Practical Approach. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thanks, uh, Dennis. Uh, really excited to be here with you. I appreciate you inviting me on to your uh, enormously successful uh, podcast. I got to say, and I think I might have expressed this to you when I first met you, I've been a big fan of yours for a while. Having come from Canada and not being too familiar with the, you know, all the fantastic work that was coming out of LAC USC in the 1990s and 2000s and up to the present day, when I finally started to get interested in clinical research and trauma, one of the first papers I published was actually in the Journal of Trauma, and it was looking at risk factors for AKI or acute kidney injury, which is a topic you've written a bunch upon. And uh, it was really just looking at the risk of contrast as a risk factor for AKI. And we came across several of your pubs on rhabdomyolysis, acute kidney injury, and these sorts of things. And so I've been a big fan of yours in terms of clinical research. And when I, I look at the topics that you've published, they kind of strike a chord with me, whether it has to do with mechanical ventilation, ARDS. And so I, I'm super excited to have you on the show. As a, I'm excited to be here too. Thank you. So as I look through your CV, you obviously have a lot of military experience. Was trauma always something that you were planning to go into as a medical student? Or when did your interest in trauma surgery develop? You know, it's interesting you asked that. It probably goes back to being a kid, honestly, it's one of the one of the biggest reasons I became a doctor to begin with, and a surgeon to begin with, and a trauma surgeon was the television show Mash. I grew up watching Mash as a kid, and it was really an impactful program for me as a child. So when I grew up, I said, "Okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be a doctor because of these guys." And they were obviously surgeons, trauma surgeons, military trauma surgeons. I don't know that I realized that that was as big an influence as it was until later in life. When I got to medical school in Galveston, when I got on the wards, surgery was for sure what I wanted to do. Um, and then when I got to be an intern in, in surgery in San Diego, I rotated on ortho, uh, urology, ENT, general surgery, and sort of, you know, I wasn't sure what, what I liked. In the Navy, I spent three years as a general medical officer after internship. So it allowed me some time to sort out what I liked. And I came back to general surgery. Had probably the best rotation I had as an intern was in trauma at Mercy Hospital with Mike Seiss. Um, really big mentor in my career. And then I, when I went back to general surgery, I rotated with Dr. Seiss again as a third year and a fourth year. So, and then I really started to understand that I love operating all over the body. And uh, as you know, you know, trauma allows that to operate, you know, in the, in the belly, obviously, but in the chest, the extremities, the neck, everywhere. And that was really what I was uh, uh, attracted to. And then the you know, taking care of really sick and injured patients in a time-sensitive manner, not always having information, that really appealed to me. And so then I went on to, uh, you know, fellowship at USC. But it, it, I really look, as I look back now, I think those years as a kid watching MASH were incredibly influential and, and had no idea at the time that they would have had such a big impact on me. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I still remember watching MASH as a kid and I wasn't really fully into it. I think I might not have understood all the humor. Yeah. 
and, and that went along with it. So I'm more of an ER kind of guy or trauma life in the ER. Yeah, yeah. And watching those and not actually knowing the difference between an emergency room doctor and a trauma surgeon, I just kind of knew that, wow, I, I like that sort of acuity, the uncertainty, being all over the body and having to make decisions and the teamwork that goes on with it. Uh, were really attractive. For sure. Now, in terms of your military experience, I understand you spent quite a bit of time in Iraq. Um, what were some of the key lessons that you took away from your military operative experience relative to what you experienced in your regular civilian day-to-day trauma experience? When I was a resident at Naval Hospital San Diego, it was peacetime. And being a resident in a military hospital during peacetime, it's just like being a resident in a civilian hospital. It's really no different. You rotate on the same services. You take care of the same kinds of patients. The real dramatic change in my military trauma experience was during you know wars in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. So when I was at LA County USC, I was helping Peter Ree run the Navy Trauma Training Center while also being a civilian trauma surgeon at LA County. So I was you know, deeply um, engaged with uh, troops, you know, corpsmen, nurses, doctors, surgeons that were about to go to, to combat in Iraq or Afghanistan in, you know, just before they train. And so that was such important work to me to be able to train those troops and, and realizing they're going to be in harm's way and need to get a refresher in trauma before they go. And then I had, uh, you know, the greatest single honor of my career uh, was getting to deploy to uh, Ramadi, Iraq, 2006, 2007 as a, as a combat trauma surgeon. And the difference uh, over there to me, the biggest differences were a few things was the patients we took care of, the casualties we took care of. So here in civilian trauma, you take care of whoever comes in the door, you do the very best that you can on every single patient, but there's not an immediate emotional tie to that patient. Uh, You know, as if, if your family member showed up or a good friend showed up, there's an immediate emotional tie, but you take care of them the best that you can, you know, deployed uh, to a combat zone. Some of the some of the casualties are American troops, U.S. troops wearing your same uniform. So there's an immediate emotional tie, which is a different sort of experience, or at least it was for me, uh, to deal with that emotion right up front every single time. The second thing was just the sheer volume and acuity of trauma cases. I mean, the the constant volume of highly injured, severely injured casualties, and the high volume of penetrating and blast injury, which comes with it you know, multiple multi-cavity injuries, uh, a lot of operative experience, um, operating again, all over the body, not only in the belly and the chest, but also the extremities. And so those were the kind of the biggest differences over there. And the lessons learned is that the, the skill set is the same, but getting that high volume repetition, high acuity just made me that much better at my job. Even having spent five years before that at LA County, it was even more volume and more acuity than it was in a civilian trauma center. I'd imagine that in addition to caring for fellow wounded soldiers, you're also looking after injured civilians Mm -hmm. who are kind of caught in the crossfire, kids, adults, the whole spectrum. Yeah, for sure. So in addition to the troops and the the number of our troops that were getting injured went down during my time there, but obviously we're taking care of Iraqi civilians, Iraqi police, Iraqi army, as well as insurgent through that time. And so it's it's a mixed bag of, of casualties. And Again, you have to get accustomed to dealing with patients from different backgrounds here in civilian practice, but it was kind of a similar situation over there. I read a really nice article by, I think, a childhood friend of yours that was published back in, I want to say 2007, and mm-hmm. it was titled, you know, Carlos Brown is a hero, although he's not going to admit it, something along those lines. But uh, it sounds like you were able to actually reunite in Iraq, and he was able to follow you through the ORs, the theaters, on the front lines and get a little 
sample or sense as to what you're actually dealing with over there. And we're going to have a link to that in the show notes because yeah. I thought it was a really sincere and well-written article. Yeah. John Spong was one of my uh, earliest childhood friends. I moved to Austin in seventh grade. And he's one of the first people I met. And so I spent a lot of time with him all through childhood, uh, you know, high school, college, adulthood, and still one of my, one of my very best friends. And he came over, uh, I specifically requested he not use that title and he ended up using it anyway. <laughs> uh, because I feel like when we're as surgeons over there, I mean, the real heroes are the troops that are out there fighting on the, you know, on the front, on the front line and really putting themselves in, in harm's way every single day. But he came out and he spent two weeks with us, with my surgical team. And my team was myself, an orthopedic surgeon, anesthesiologist, uh, a PA nurse and three Navy corpsmen. <clears throat> and uh, he embedded with us uh, for two weeks. And his two week snapshot was kind of remarkable because he really saw everything that we did. He saw busy times, slow times. He saw... Uh, mass casualties, operative cases, downtime where we played video games and lifted weights. And he kind of got a full gamut uh, experience in a two-week snapshot and then wrote a story that was kind of about, uh, you know, about us growing up, but also what was going on over there at the time. It was kind of a, it was kind of a, a impactful time during the war. It was the Alan Bar awakening where things sort of turned for the better uh, in Ramadi uh, because of Colonel McFarland, who's now a general in the army, he was our commanding officer on that base. But he did a lot of kind of really amazing things there to turn things around. But John came over for a two-week stretch and, and had a really amazing experience and wrote a really cool story about it. Yeah, that was a pleasure to read. And when I think about the, the military experience and, and, and the wealth of information, uh, data, the contributions to the scientific community, they really are amazing, especially in a field like trauma surgery. When you think back to these conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and what we've learned about the one-to-one-to-one resuscitation, you know, retrospective studies, but eventually were the sort of springboard for things like proper and other studies which have informed modern resuscitation of injured victims. It, it really is remarkable. Or the use of tourniquets, for example. All of this is coming out of your guys' experience overseas. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously not, not much good comes from a war, but the medical advances are always kind of fascinating. You, like you mentioned, tourniquets, one-to-one, now turning back to, you know, it was whole blood turning one-to-one, now coming back to whole blood, uh, tourniquets, placement for needle thoracostomies. And then on the military side, you know, better, uh, better body armor, things like that, mass casualty experiences. It, it's, it's unbelievable how much just since the war uh, started, you know, in 2003, how much our, our practice of trauma has changed because of those uh, uh, conflicts. When I, when I think about research, as I kind of look at your background, I kind of noticed that the, the first publication you had was maybe in the year 2000, which is somewhere near your PGY four or five years. So it's not like you were in medical school thinking, I'm going to be this big academician and I'm going to publish a bunch of papers every year. It seems like that happened maybe a little bit later in your career. And so how did you make that transition from going into military service to doing fellowship and then deciding you want to be an academic triple threat surgeon? Yeah. So when I was in medical school, I loved the teaching part of it. I love being on rounds. I love being pimped. I love being pushed to do the best that I could. And that specifically came up on surgery. But I had no exposure to research. No one really told me to do research in medical school. So I went to my Navy residency and people sort of said, hey, you should do research. And I didn't really know how to do it. I didn't know what that meant. I wrote, I think, three papers. I think I graduated residency with three papers, which is kind of embarrassing to say now. <laughs> and then, 
I, uh, when I got to LA County, I got there at such an incredible time by just who was there when I got there. So when I got to LA County, it was uh, Demetriotis, Velma Hose, and Peter Ree, right? So all three of them were there at that Amazing. moment, as well as, you know, Juan Asensio was there, Jim Murray was there. And so I'm exposed now to some of the absolute giants in surgery, in trauma specifically. And they were such a good group of mentors and supportive and encouraging. And it was just a culture that, that everyone wrote. So everyone wrote more. So everyone wrote more. And then over time, more great people came. Ali Salim came and uh, ended up being, again, uh, a mentor, a partner, and one of my best friends. Kenji Naba came, again, a partner, one of my best friends. But the, the, the group of people that were in L.A. County during my time there, which is 2002 to 2007, are some of the biggest names in the business. And when you're around that, it's such an incredibly fertile ground to publish. And you just you just work off each other. We have a weekly research meeting. We discuss dozens of projects. And you know, I guess it was maybe an expectation, but mostly just like that's what we were there to do was to try to advance the science of trauma. And I give really all the credit to my research uh, career to those, that group of people that are at LA County with me during those five years. An incredible group of mentors and trauma surgeons, prolific in terms of the contributions to the trauma literature. Now, for me, I went into fellowship here after doing a fellowship in Canada. And when I finally met my career and research mentor, that's when I really started to become interested in clinical research and asking questions that I wanted answered just because I didn't know what the answers were. For young folks out there who maybe don't have, you know, the, the mentorship and that well-functioning system to have research meetings and to put each other on each other's publications, from your experience, any suggestions in terms of how someone who maybe doesn't have that much clinical research experience can start getting some meaningful papers out there? Yeah, that's a great question. It's and a tough thing. It's something I wish I'd known earlier in my career. I think a few things. One is if you don't have a mentor, find a mentor, right? So it doesn't have to be at your institution. There's plenty of people all over the country that are super excited about research and can help you through that. Number two is multi-center studies are a really good way to do two things. One is publish papers. Two is meet people in the trauma research world. And in the, in in trauma, there's East has multi-center trials. Western trauma has multi-center trials. Double ST has multi-center trials. And they're always looking for uh, other centers to enroll in those. And that's just a really straightforward, easy way to start dipping your, your toe into trauma research. And the other thing is you just have to write. And I know it's hard, but the bottom line is you just have to sit at your desk and write. And Hassan Alam, uh, you know, he's, I've heard him say this before, is just, just sit down and start writing. It doesn't matter what you write. doesn't matter how it is. Just write something every single day or every single week or some. So you just get in the habit of writing and then writing gets you better at writing, which gets you better at writing. The one mistake I made, I think, in my research career that I wish I'd done differently is I wish I'd focused more on one area. I've sort of been a little bit all over the map. I've had a couple of niches, like you mentioned, rhabdomyolysis, uh, obesity and trauma, now more recently platelets and critical care. But I really wish I'd done more to kind of stick to one area of trauma critical care to writings. I think it allows you to advance a little bit more quickly within your within your academic circles. Yeah, I agree with that. I kind of did the same sort of shotgun thing like, oh, I'm interested in this, I'll write a paper on that and so on and so forth. But it does help to become known as a content expert yeah. in a particular focused area of our specialty, which is so broad. 
And that's what's going to get you invited lectures and a talk at Grand Rounds and maybe an invitation right. to present at a regional or national meeting. So I think that's great advice. And I, I think what you said about um, the, the mentorship across uh, different organizations is also very important. For example, East has a great mentorship program that you can join and sign up for. They pair you up with someone. And then you can start to ask questions very early in your career as a resident. What are the things that I need to do if I want to have a, a career in academics? Or what if I want to be a rural surgeon? You know, what are sort of the things that I should be thinking about as I'm preparing for a career in a less resourced area as well? For sure. So you spent a, a few years at LEC USC and then eventually returned to Austin. Was that something that you were always planning on going back home? Or was that the understanding maybe with your family and others as you left medical school to go off to your residency training? A little bit of both. So I, I got to San Diego in 1993 and I met my wife that year. So she was a NICU nurse. I was a surgery intern. We ended up hanging out through mutual friends and and so my original plan was just to do my four years in the Navy and, and get out and do my residency and come back home. And I so much enjoyed my military experience that I ended up staying in 14 years. So that was really kind of a shift. And my wife was a civilian nurse who worked in a Navy hospital. So she had a really uh, good relationship with the Navy. And we just loved our time in the military, loved our time in Southern California. And really, the coming back to Austin was always on, on the on the list, on the docket to, to do, but the timing of it, I didn't really, wasn't sure. But when I deployed in 2006, 2007, and I knew about that deployment probably a year ahead of time, I said, I'm probably going to do that deployment, a combat deployment, and then uh, go ahead and separate. Cause I had three little kids and as good as the deployment was for me professionally, it was really hard for my wife and kids and all those servicemen and women that deploy and leave their families behind. That's excruciating not only for the service member, but for the family as well. We thought the best thing for our family was to uh, go ahead and get out of the Navy at that time. And the, so I started looking at the job in Austin probably two, two and a half years before I got here. And I looked at some other jobs uh, across the country, but this seemed to make the most sense to come back home. Austin's a great place to live. And it was a place where I could really build. It was, uh, there was no medical school here then. I was recruited back to do two things. One was start a residency program and two was take our, our Brackenridge Hospital trauma program from level two to level one. So basically residency, training, and research, which two things I have a passion for. And I, was, uh, I, I was able to do that here in Austin, which coming home and doing that at home has been awesome. And then the plan was to be there's going to be a medical school in Austin. And in 2007, I thought it was going to be UTMB Galveston would have an Austin branch. And Hurricane Ike came through Galveston 2008 and basically wiped out uh, any possibility of any Galveston CME being in Austin. And then it took quite a while until the last, I guess, about 10 years ago when the Dell Medical School idea started developing. And, um, it, you know, about six years ago it was started. And now it's it's really cool to, I went to University of Texas and now I'm a professor at University of Texas. To have it all come full circle has been kind of an amazing journey. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a great place to live. It's a great institution. Um, and so, yeah, it's been awesome. When I talk with folks that are kind of mid-career, sort of like myself, they, they've been out for maybe five, 10 years, you start getting invites to look at places, or maybe you start looking around like you were a couple of years even before you, you left uh, LA to go to Austin. How often should we be looking at the career boards and job opportunities? Mm -hmm. If you're, uh, you're just starting out, what sort of determines when is a good time to make that 
jump to your second job or second career? Or is that going to just vary based on your social, familiar circumstances and happiness with your current situation? Yeah, I think that that's a really tough question. We obviously have a lot of people that change jobs pretty frequently in our profession. And, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I hope to be in my last job and hope to be here until I retire from clinical practice. I would say a couple of things. One is what is really important in a job? And to me, what's really important in a job is you have to be happy with the job. And I think the people you work with, your partners are absolutely an essential part of your happiness. I, I love my partners in Los Angeles. I love my partners here. And getting to come to work every single day with the people that I work with makes my job awesome. The clinical job is great. Don't get me wrong. But, but you know, coming to a great clinical job with partners you don't get along with or don't enjoy, that's not fun. That's not going to be fun. So I think, you know, is the, does the job make you happy? Are you around good people? And then is the, is the geography, the location good for your family, right? I think we've, we, it didn't it used to not matter at all what was good for your family. It was what was best for you as the, as the surgeon, the academic surgeon. I think right. a huge part of it now is what is good for your family. Is the city good for your family or the school is good for your family? Is the work-life balance at that job good for your family? And I think those are essential decisions. When to look, I would say, when you get to a job, give it some time, you know, give it four or five years to really kind of engross yourself in that situation and see what it's like. You, you can't tell what something's like after a year in general. And then, you know, one, do you have to look at all or do you have a target place? Like my target place is coming back to Austin. Do you have somewhere you'd like to be and maybe start looking to how you could get back there? And then what is your upward mobility at your institution? Let's say you're an assistant professor and you have aspirations of being a trauma director, a program director, a critical care director, do those opportunities exist at your place or do you have to start looking somewhere else to maybe gain those opportunities? And then keep yourself as competitive as possible to do whatever you want to do. Keep as many doors open as you can, which means uh, do research, teach, get involved in national organizations to make yourself as marketable as possible, whether you're looking or not, but always keep yourself as marketable as possible. Great advice. And I think in addition, obviously, to the, the national or gaining a national presence is really getting involved in some leadership opportunities, if possible, uh, at your own institution, you know, whether that's in quality improvement or patient safety, find a niche or niche to kind of fit into, take ownership of it, and then be recognized for your expertise in that area. Now, one of the things that I hear a lot of folks talking about is the opportunity to build. And oftentimes, that's one of the major reasons people, in addition to all the other factors that you just discussed, um, that's one of the factors that might draw someone to the next career opportunity. Where do you find the time and how do you organize yourself and your team to make that a success? Because that seems like a huge ask. Yeah, I, you know, the, when I got here, Brackenridge Hospital had been a level two center since 1995, so for 12 years. So the trauma stuff, they did really, really well and had a really good outcomes and got every year from the American College of Surgeons verification, y'all are great trauma center, you're super busy, we think you should be a level one. And the, kind of the biggest difference between level one and two is going to be resident education and research. And so that's really what they needed. But the way to have the time to do that is surround yourself with really good people. So I had really good partners. I had a great uh, trauma program, as far as trauma program manager, uh, you know, registrars, PI folks, all that. So surrounding yourself with good people that that have a passion for that job, um, I think, is an essential part of it. And the time time management is one I think one of the hardest parts of our job, and I think we don't talk about it very often. But how do you balance your clinical job 
with your research, with your educational responsibilities, with your professional travel, with your family. I mean, so time management is an essential part of what we do without question. And the reality is none of us work a 40-hour work week, right? We more work like an 80-hour work week. But even in an 80-hour work week, you still need time to do research. And sometimes that's nights and weekends. Um, or some of your administrative stuff is nights and weekends. But I think the key to building, and I never, I didn't have aspirations of building, but now that I've done it, it's been fantastic and really rewarding. And I think you have to, you, you kind of hit it on the head is, is have the resources in place to do it. So try to build something when the resources is going to fail. So have the resources, have the people around you that can help you get the job done. And then make sure your schedule has time allotted to do that. Do you have uh, three kids yeah. and your spouse? obligations at home and obviously you need to get some R&R. And so what sorts of fun activities do you like to do with your family outside of work? Well, my wife, Debbie, and I have been married 25 years. We just spent our 25th anniversary in San Diego at the Hotel Del where we got married. So oh, congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So she and I uh, like to travel, uh, like to go out to dinner with friends. Uh, we play golf together. Our, probably our biggest family activities are out on the lake, uh, on a boat on Lake Austin, uh, wake surfing or just boating around that and having that opportunity here in Austin is fantastic. But, you know, ski trips and vacations as a family. My kids are all about to be out of school. So my oldest son, Trevor's graduated from TCU going into um, commercial real estate. My daughter, Madison's at sophomore at Georgia, my youngest son, TCU. So Debbie and I are learning to be empty nesters and what that's going to be like. But, you know, I, I think one thing as a surgeon, and you know, if you don't have to be at work, let's even if it's two in the afternoon, but your work is done, leave and go do the things that you can, that bring pleasure to you outside of work. I think so much of our culture is like you stay late no matter what, because that's what we do. We stay late. But I think we have to change that mindset. You know, if it's two in the afternoon on a Tuesday and you've got nothing else going on, go hang out on the lake or go take, go for a run or a swim or go on the boat or whatever. Um, but our, our fun is, is spending time together as a family. And hopefully we'll keep doing that now that we're empty nesters, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always joke with my wife, Alexis, that uh, we're going to get a big RV and whether our kids want us to visit or not, we're going to park it outside of their apartment or house or wherever and just hang out and invite them in for breakfast and <laughs> make coffee. That's a great plan. <laughs> Now, you've talked about time management, surrounding yourself with the right people, obviously having resources, whether they're human resources or other resources available to be a success. When you look back on your career, Dr. Brown, are there certain stumbles or failures along the way that you learned from and that really kind of changed the way you practice or your perspective on things in this crazy career of trauma and critical care? The reality is, I think people understand we all make mistakes, every single one of us, whether people admit it or not, we all make mistakes. And that is an opportunity to learn how to be a better surgeon the next time around and, and learn and grow from those mistakes. And some of those mistakes not only hurt the patient, obviously, but can hurt you emotionally, hurt me emotionally. And I think having a group of people that you can talk to, uh, you know, for me, it's my wife, Debbie, and my partners, uh, and really get to the difficult conversations about what that mistake how, why you made it, how you made it, how it affected you, how it affected the patient is really important. You know, mistakes along, I mentioned the research. I wish I'd been a little more focused on how I put together my research career now in retrospect. I mean, it, it's been fine. I'm, I'm happy with my career, but I, I would have liked to have been a little more focused over time. And then, you know, I wouldn't say it was a mistake, but it was hard coming to Austin. Came here and there was no university, no medical school. 
and trying to sort of run with the big dogs was really hard for a long time. And I realized that running with the big dogs is not necessarily all it's cracked up to be. You need to, you mentioned it early, you need to have a great local presence and then build your regional and national reputation on top of that. You know, I think early on, everyone wants to be at a busy trauma center with tons of penetrating trauma where you work, where I worked at LA County. My center here is, is busy as well. Not as much penetrating as there. But, you know, that, that's not necessarily how, how everyone has to build their career. Like not every trauma center is super busy with penetrating trauma. And there are other really important aspects of trauma care. You know, the trauma system, the critical care, the emergency surgery and acute care surgery. And then you come back to the geography uh, of where you're living and how, how that relates to your priorities for your family it is massive and something that hasn't really been talked about until recently. What's the best thing for your family? What's the best thing for your career? What's the best thing for your family? If you can match those up, perfect. That's like the perfect situation. But if you can't, you have to weigh the pros and cons of both and kind of see what is the best fit for those two, for your family and for your uh, academic career, uh, how, how they fit together. Great words of wisdom. And I uh, really appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners will as well. Well, listen, Dr. Brown, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Trauma ICU Rounds. This was very, very insightful, informative and look forward to having you back on the show. Hey, Dennis, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, man. Awesome. See you. Take care. And that wraps it up for another episode of Trauma ICU Round. Some fantastic and valuable insight from an experienced and well-respected surgeon, Dr. Carlos Brown. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to let us know. You can go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you normally download your podcast. Make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a kind comment. Until next time, please stay safe, keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another.